This is Marnie with Maxim and Marnie, a podcast that I get to do with members of our church community uh, in the hopes of sharing people's truths and their stories um, that help people relate and feel more connected in our community, um, which I've been really honored to do some really special ones. We're wrapping up the year. Oh, actually, wait, this is going to come out in the new year. Is this 2020? I'm saying that this is 2020. Okay. So we're going to Happy gonna New end, Year, everybody. Yeah, Happy New Year. We are ending the season in December with Pastor John in a special Christmas episode. So you will have heard that. This and is the now future. this is the future. Yeah, it's this the is year weird. 2020. This is weird to talk about. So today we have a really special guest, Kevin. Already Maggard. forgot. Maggard. You told me a trick to remember this. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, you bet. Um, Kevin, let's start out. Where are you from and where did you grow up? Uh, well, actually, here in Naperville. I'm trying to think. Probably, I pulled into Naperville in probably 1968. Wait, when were you born? How old are you for the audience? 63. So, yeah, I guess that makes me, what year is this? 56. So you're in the baby boomer generation. Yes, I'm the the tail, last, consider it tail end. Yeah, like the last two end. years of the boomers, yeah. Okay, so you can stand in judgment of all of the rest of us. I, indeed, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've got the that premium as part of my generation. Character. Yeah. So you moved from where in the 60s? Um, well, it's actually kind of interesting. My dad, I, I guess I was, I was uh, born in Youngstown, Ohio, but six weeks after I was born, my dad was uh, kind of part of military intelligence, so we moved to Beirut, Lebanon. And I grew up in Beirut up until Guam, Iran, um, until the age of about three and a half. And when the war broke out, we moved back stateside. Um, and eventually he migrated up to Naperville. And if anybody's familiar with the Crest Creek condominiums across the street from Naperville North High School, mm-hmm. that was actually built by Metal Lark Lemon of the Harlem Globetrotters. So as a kid growing up, I always thought that I thought the Harlem Globetrotters, if you watched the cartoon as a kid, that they went to everybody's neighborhood and hung out, right? Because they would come out and do do some fun <laughs> things and, and uh, yeah, oh fun fact. Oh, my gosh, how uh, funny. Wait a second. So the guy who was in the Globetrotters then the had leader, a construction right? company. Hard, yeah. Well, he, his, his financial planner suggested he Invest. make an investment. So he built that that. Oh, that's that so place, funny. My right? girls wow. are going to see them for the first time at the end of the month. Yeah, so he, he is the, you know, he is the, the original. And so you saw him. He's come back there every year, and he'd bring two or three guys oh, how funny. to hang out. And if you watch the cartoon, they're always traveling around like Scooby-Doo and solving mysteries and yeah. playing basketball. So, cute. so I thought, well, they must do this for every neighborhood, right? Uh, <laughs> Wait a second. I have to back up. So you lived in Beirut. Yeah. I wish that That's you crazy. lived there beyond three because I feel like you that was a cool thing. But really, do you have any memory of that? Uh, actually, I do a little bit because I remember almost getting killed by a car. Um, the I, And what it did was it, it created this visual that I can literally remember like the time of day I can remember every aspect every single ounce of that it was like a beautiful day I remember how close the car had come I was barely walking and I can literally remember my mom on the balcony like screaming right weirdest thing so I do remember a little snippet right because it was trauma right I think like yeah yeah Yeah. so then you come here but Mm -hmm. your parents were from Ohio yeah, they and had, when you described your dad's job, does that mean he's in the CIA? He did some work work for them, but he was out of it by that time. Like when he left Beirut, he went into you know the exciting field of insurance, 
That's right. a real departure. Yeah, yeah, which which I think you know I think he he really was disappointed and regretted because mom liked li- did not like living overseas. So we come so to Naperville, and about three and a half blocks from here, straight down Robin Hill, yep. is where I kind of grew up. So I went to Elmwood, to Lincoln, yeah. and then in high school, my parents there was a divorce, so we moved to Texas. And then somewhat, somehow migrated back and have been here for about 14 years. So did you go to high school in Texas? I did. Well, how traumatic was that? Awesome. It was awesome. Oh. It was an awesome experience. So not yeah. negative at all. No, no, no. Texas has great money. No, no, yeah, no, no, no. No, no judgment on Texas. Just saying freshman year to going move. into high school to start a new community, that wasn't... No, I was, I, was, I was pretty flexible. In fact, I think that even kind of goes as part of my story was... Um, you know, and we'll get into it a little bit, but, you know, Brian and I have talked about the role of image management in as one of the tools that I use. So I was very much like a, like a milit like you see it a lot with milit- kids that grow up in the military is the ability to adapt themselves to any situation. Mm-hmm. It's almost a chameleon like uh, trait that served me growing up, but became um, an impediment as an adult. So, like, Im- say that Say that again, image? Image management. Image management. Yes. And so you're saying, like, you are, to me, that sounds like you're reading the social cues of people and where you fit in that, like, really well. Is that not what you mean by that? It, it is. It is. But it, there's there's kind of a, a dark side to it, right, is exactly, you're, you're to kind of, in Naperville, so, you know, my dad was... Uh, adopted and grew up in foster homes so he had his set of issues mom was mexican so she had her set of issues and i was probably the at that time it felt like about the only mexican kid that had moved into naperville right um skinny awkward and so you know what do you do you you try to as you said is and i would say one of my strengths is a pretty acute um emotional intelligence, being able to read people and then adapt to the situation. And that sounds, well, that sounds like it can be good, but that adaptation took the form of a lot of lying, right? Yeah. So not being true to who you were. I like red. Oh, I like red too. Right. But never knowing if you liked red. Am I simplifying it too much with that? Uh, Not really, but it gets, it gets maybe even darker than that because I think that's the beginning of the journey is, um, you know, which, you know, to kind of jump into it is my parents are here and I really enjoyed growing up in Naperville, all aspects of it. But underneath that, um, both parents struggled with, um, addictions with both alcohol and drugs. Um, neither one of them had really grown up in healthy environments. They really didn't know how to have a relationship. And then if you look in the seventies, when every house had at least four kids, right? It was, in fact, I would say it was almost more of a stigma to be an only child as much as it was to be, you know, the only Mexican kid in Naperville. I felt like I was the only, only child in Naperville. Uh, okay. So two things really defining two, you. And then I'm, and they both worked. So I was very much of a latchkey kid. And so, you know, since I didn't get a lot of affirmations, I didn't particularly like myself very much. So if I could convince you to like me, then I could feed off that. I fed off your adulation on me. And so therefore, since I'm not happy in my own skin, just being who I am, 
I had to create a fictitious character, almost a superhero version of me, that people's like, wow, this guy's, you know, he's all that. It's like, yeah, I am. Yeah. So that was one of the tools in the box that I used throughout, you know, growing up um, that, that became a, a foundation to what arose into the addictive personality. Can I, can I just, I have to say, do you see why I love Kevin? <laughs> he, is, he is the most truthful, like right there. Who, who um, examines their childhood like that? Like, I think in that honest really way. I powerful. love it. powerful. Yes. Yeah. And so you really were like, I feel like the other. Yes. In all these different ways. Right. But I'm going to minimize those so that when I'm in the group, I feel so much more like the group, which I think probably a lot of people right. do do, right? Like, right. don't they say developmentally, maybe you've heard this, like in elementary school, the um, community as a whole has all of the power. So if everybody's wearing slapsticks or everybody's wearing the issues, everybody wants to do that. And then in junior high, smaller groups, cliques, high school are like cliques are celebrated. So these groups are the cool kids or the popular kids or the jock kids are celebrated. And then not until college is the individual celebrated. Like, wow, look at that person owning this part of them. And we honor that and celebrate that as a community. I feel like somebody has even said, like, that's just developmentally something that happens in people. Like, I can move away from the group as I mature into knowing about myself because it's like, did you even... I don't know. In high school, like when you're saying that, I think most of us, maybe we're not able to, I don't know. You, oh, I am confident. I am owning it. I think, you know, I'll, to give you an example, and I'll probably relate to my kids a little bit, is, for instance, my, and I think this, this is their generation too, but, you know, my daughter is a, is a good example, is she never was looking for a boyfriend. Right, uh-huh. she didn't need that affirmation, didn't need it. and I kind of feel like if this is just Kevin's position is, is if I have raised her and she feels secure in her household that the family unit is intact, she's not going to feel a need to go. God, I gotta have a boyfriend. Everybody's got a boyfriend, or she's not gonna have the need like, oh, where's the cool click? In fact, what I observed in her is that she grab- gravitated away from some of those things. And I looked at her and said, she seems very comfortable in her skin. She doesn't mm-hmm. need that because, you know, we see so often, particularly like I think in, in some of the, the adolescent girls is, I have to have a boyfriend. Mm-hmm. I have to. And to me, I guess I interpret that as, you know, are you getting enough affirmation? It's not an indictment. It's just a feeling, right? Um, that was how I felt about the situation. Whereas myself, you know, kind of let's, let's go back and examine that. So here I am in Naperville um, and you know, everybody accepted me, but it was it was my lens on the situation. Right. I didn't feel like they were accepting me, not in the way I wanted. It's because I wasn't accepting myself. Mm-hmm. It was more about me not accepting me and wanting to create something more. And so that's where a lot of times, you know, obviously I'm here because we'll talk about addictions. And part of addiction is we thrive in chaos. We create chaos because we're comfortable in chaos whether we like to admit it or not. And so whether it's it's lying or exaggerating or whatever it is, you know, whatever our behavior characters characteristics how they come out, it's that that chaos that un, that uncertainty is something that we just get comfortable in that. And when when there is no chaos and we'll kind of get into the story as to well why does an addict not like that? Mm. Right? 
So, you know, as, as we like to say is, is so, you know, if you want, it's kind of like, what was it like, you know, what happened and what is it like today, right? So if you want, I'll kind of continue to move like, okay, so where did the, the addictions begin to come? So, so first you've got, all right, feel like an only child, you're, you know, you feel one down. And Brian and I talk about this position of feeling like I'm one down. Whether it's true or not, doesn't mm-hmm. matter. It's how I feel. Yep. So how do I create a one up, not just a neutral? No, I got to be one up. And so it was through, you know, these, these storytellings and the lying and, you know, maybe even fighting, you know, whatever, to try and to get into, you know, it was a fight daily to get into a one up position. We just can't be equals. I got to be in one up. And, you know, in my neighborhood, we, you know, in those days, it's, it was, hey, kids, get out of the house. Don't come home till dinner. And, you know, we had a lot of fun. But it was interesting is that I observed is we would be having fun. Nobody would say anything to me. But just all of a sudden, I'm like, hey, I got to go inside now. Why? Well, I'm grounded. I mean, I would, I would make up reasons to leave the group. And I would say this is the early part of where the addiction, see, this is why I had to go into my childhood um, is to understand what is the underlying root that created the, the addiction that I now find myself having to resolve. And it was isolation. I began, that was another tool in my box. So one tool was lying in the image management. The next tool was I wanted to isolate. So I would go into my house. I would go into the basement. I would turn the TV on. And I would say TV really became my very first addiction. And I would sit and, you know, those that grew up in my age would remember all these. It's like I would sit for hours and watch everything from Bewitched to the Brady Bunch to the Flintstones to, you know, all those things, right? And on hours. And it was a way to just tune out the world. Because addiction is using something outside to change how you feel on the inside. Am I saying that wrong? To disconnect feel. Ah, Say that that again. Say you correct me. Yes. No. As I have studied this is it is to disengage. It's so I don't have to feel anything. Even if I was feeling good hanging out with the kids and everything, it's like something in me began to tell me that I don't even want to feel because if you've ever sat in a dark room and watched TV, you can't feel a thing. You feel right, nothing, right. right? It's a complete numbing. And TV was that for me. And, you know, if there were siblings, I mean, you, you know, siblings would be bugging you. And it, it's like, see, I didn't have it. So I had a complete deprivation tank that I had created. And I was really comfortable in that deprivation tank. And I think that is kind of the root of what became a journey. So then we move on to middle school. Middle school's, you know, it's tough for everybody. Now I would say, you know, for the most part, it, it was a pretty positive experience. There were a lot of really good times. I mean, and I never felt bullied, but I felt bad. I mean, my parents went through their divorce, um, you know, and I guess I had all, I was raised Catholic and I'd always kind of, you know, would pray and I would say, you know, God didn't give me the gifts I wanted. I wanted to be really super smart and really super fast and really super strong and really super good looking, right? I didn't get any of that. 
right? No, uh, we beg to differ. Yeah. He's a very, <laughs> listeners, he's a very handsome man. And I don't know how fast you are. <laughs> <laughs> we'll race after. Um, so, and, and so it was really hard. So it's like, uh, just how do you fit in? Where's my place? And as I've learned, it's like, we'll talk about the inner child. And we probably all, you know, it's like, it's a great question, everybody. What is that one age? Like, if you could define ages, right? I usually would say it's like, I think of probably three, which was the Beirut experience. I probably think of 13, which was, I guess you're about seventh, eighth grade mm-hmm. at that point, and then kind of moving into adult. And how do I feel about that 13-year-old? Well, for years and years and years, decades, I hated that 13-year-old. I despised that 13-year-old. Why? He was weak. He was, he was worthless. He, he wasn't excelling. He, you know, yeah. and, and it's like, wow, you're pretty hard on that guy, aren't mm-hmm. you? And it's like, uh, you know, it's like, well, what if that was my nephew? Right. What if right. that was my son? Right. Okay. What would I tell him? Right. If that was my nephew or my son, would I say, you're right, you're worthless, you're weak. Yeah, never. And, and you're a mess. Is that what I would say? And it's like, okay, then why am I telling myself that I'm that? And so that is kind of the beginning of the journey to in, in starting to, to overcome the addiction is I suddenly began to realize that I have to embrace that 13-year-old, that I have to love him in the same way that I'd probably love my son, right? So it was put to me this way, the, the analogy... Um, was imagine a river and a 13-year-old shows up and he has to get across this river. He has no tools. He has no adult. He has nothing. He has to figure out how to get across that river. Um, and, you know, he gets across. So why shouldn't he be praised for using what he had and the resilience that he had to survive it? And now as an adult, you embrace that 13-year-old and you say, hey, guess what? I'm bringing a whole new set of tools and experiences. And that, now you can, you can help that 13-year-old. It's like, I am going to protect you from this moment on. I'm going to be here for you. We're going to do this together. Now the healing can really begin. Wow. Right? Yeah, giving yourself grace. Yeah. Yeah. God, we're going to go into that one. Most yeah. important word. Thank you, by yeah. the way. That one's huge. I'm glad you brought that up. But let's finish what happened. And yeah, then so come in back high school, mm-hmm. what happened? So now I discovered, like anybody, you know, especially in this town, um, drinking, mm. right? Uh, and drinking was great. We yeah. all drank. I mean, con- we, I mean, it was just a big part. And then move on to college and drinking and, and get married. And so. And in high school and in college, school, it's social, it's yes. fun, you're good. I'm good. And. And so, you know, we'll kind of fast forward because, you know, get married, have kids, you know, I'm drinking, you know, living in a neighborhood, everybody's drinking right. and it's great. But then, you know, I start to realize I'm beginning to observe that, well, other people drink as let's call it a social lubricant. Maybe they can drink one or two, three or four. Okay. And then there's people that are just heavy drinkers. It is not on me. Because a lot of people say, hey, do you think they're yeah, an addict? It's yeah, like, yeah, that's yeah. not my call. Right. That's not my call. I can only worry about me. What I observed in my behavior was like, no, I'm drinking to inoculate, not 
to have a social conversation with you. I'm drinking to inoculate, much like the TV, okay? So that, that feeling, that deprivation tank, well, alcohol did that for me. Is As soon as I could start drinking alcohol, I would get that same feeling of, as you, as you said earlier, it's like I could disconnect my feelings. Boom. It's like a light switch. Yeah. They're Some gone. Some relief. Yeah. Some relief. or, yeah. Yeah. And so to the point where I didn't even want to drink with, with people anymore. And even in, at work, it would be, okay, um, I'm at this event, at this dinner. Well, I don't want to be seen drinking a whole bottle of wine by myself, you know, at this dinner table. So I'll wait till after and then I'll go drink, you know, more. And then I got to the point where it's like, I didn't even care. I'm going to drink as much as I want at this table. I mean, the wine's flowing. If somebody notices, they notice. If they don't notice, but I don't care. And then I'm going to go drink some more until three and four in the morning. Um, and, you know, obviously this is, this is going on, you know. In fact, I think I recognized that I had a drinking problem. And that's the thing. I did recognize it. Mm-hmm. I am not somebody who, who said, like, I'm in denial. Uh-uh. I knew back in 1997. Um, so how old were you in 97? In 97, well, if you figure I was born in 68, 78, I guess, yeah, I'm, I'm in my 20s. And so you're right out of college or you're in college and you're like, this is different. I'm different on how I'm using this. I'm different yeah. than the people around me. Like, you just were aware. I was, I was aware of it, but I didn't care. Well, or just even have the tools to know, like, mm. well, why would I stop? And, and yeah, maybe right. even what that looks like, right? Yeah. And it, and so I started to, you know, seek help, right? I went into a program of recovery. At what yeah. time? Oh, my tw- probably, oh, so the first probably 30, time. Yeah, 30, okay. 30 okay. years old. Yes. So I would say, you know, I have been trying to establish sobriety for more than 20 years. Okay. Okay. And so I was kind of in and out of a program of sobriety, in and out, in and out. It just wasn't taking for me. And I couldn't understand why. Why is it not working for me? I'm working these steps, but it's just, it's, it's not, it's not catching. Something in my brain is telling me I'm going to go back. And so in 2012, uh, it was Fat Tuesday. I had been out and I was pulled over and got my first DUI. Okay. And, you know, I basically, they said, you're, you're on five years. Uh, anything happens in the next five years, we're going to give you the DUI. But they basically said, if you're clean for the next five years, it won't show up on your record. Right. And so working the steps, have a sponsor and somehow in the back of my brain, I could feel this like little squeaky wheel turning that was almost like waiting for the mm-hmm. end of the five years. Yeah. And I really wanted to get sober. And, um, you know, a lot of times they talk about finding your bottom. It was interesting. I had a sponsor at that time, and he helped me a lot, but we didn't particularly like each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can remember saying, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm basically it's not going to go on my record, didn't lose my job, didn't lose anything, everything's going to be cool. He's like, yeah, it's too bad. I was like, <laughs> okay. But I kind of understand where he's coming from. He's like, you know, have you... Have you had enough? You say that all the time. Have you had enough? And 
so, you know, I'm working this program five years and almost to the day, you know, I started to drink again. And in your mind, you were like, what? I'll, this time it'll be fine. No. Or no, you were like, no, I I'm just a, want this feeling. I just want this feeling. Yeah. Right. Because what I've learned, um, no amount of education, no amount of willpower or commitment, no amount of sacrifice is going to be enough. I don't care how much I know or I think I know, it's not enough. It is, you know, and that's kind of the unfortunate truth about addiction is the the only thing is a a full-on spiritual change that needs to happen because in fact, even fear, even the fear of going to jail is not enough for an addict. That's, and that's, that's interesting. It's like literally an addict will, if you say, hey, if, if, if you get caught one more time crossing the street, you're going to jail. The addict will still cross the street. The fear is not enough. Right. Well, I always remember that Robert Downey Jr., um, where he's in the court and he says to the judge, like, he's going to be sentenced. And he says, it's like I have the gun in my mouth and I'm going to shoot it and I don't want to shoot it, but I just really like the taste of that gun metal. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, so, oh, I like that one. Yeah. That's like, you, it's that's, so ridiculous from the outside to say, well, just take the gun out of your mouth. What are you doing? Yeah. But yeah, that it overweighs the want of that. You can't scare an addict sober. You can't educate an addict sober. You can't ask them to sacrifice or, or commit or willpower to get sober. Only a vital spiritual experience. So tell us about that pivotal yeah. moment for you. Well, uh, there's, there's one more. <laughs> one more uh, is. Is I guess the date was uh, November 11th of 17. Is I got pulled over again, and I received my <clears throat> second DUI, right? And so you know that has been going on. And the thing is, it took two years of going back and forth and back and forth to the courts over and over and over and over, right? And they they would not even give me my judgment. So. So <clears throat> it was like the sword of Democles over my head. Oh, I don't know what that means. What's it, that it's mean? the sword. It's the, the mythical. It's like it, it's. I don't exactly know the myth Greek itself. Greek god, Roman god, something. Uh, I think it's Greek. Okay. Greek. The sword of Democles is basically this sword that's just literally standing over your head, waiting to drop. You just don't know when it's going to mm -hmm. fall. Mm -hmm. So there's a fear of that, right? The sword of Democles, and um, so every day. But I also, this is when I begin the journey to, to my walk with God as it exists today. It's like, you know, this is something I'm grateful for because as, as I look back, it's like that was painful. But every day it gave me an opportunity to at least take a pause and think about my higher power. So Wait, so how did that happen? How did you have like a reconciliation of faith in intervening here? Um, yeah, what, what was different? I knew I had to do something different <clears throat> and, you know, I had, I had begun to develop some tools 
um, that were helpful. And, and, I, as, and so one of the things that was recommended to me was, hey, you know, maybe you should see a therapist. And I was like, no way, no way. I'm way too cool. I'm way too successful, way too smart. I don't need a therapist. So I went to see a therapist. And it was a very good experience. And then the therapist says, hey, maybe you should, you know, unplug and go for some rehab. Go to a wellness facility. Hey, are you? No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And I did. I went to uh, Arizona, to Wickenburg, Arizona. And uh, I was in an inpatient program for 45 days. And I'll tell you, you know, what was interesting to me was, was when a therapist said, Need I remind you, you are in a level one psych ward right now. Like a, what? <laughs> I, uh, you know, I mean, it just kind of like, oh, okay. I mean, uh, you know, that kind of hit me. But that's, I think, where some of the psychic change began to happen is as I'm going through this process is what are some of the things, what did I start to learn? And that's where, let's circle back, was I kept focusing on trying to address the alcohol uh, you know, through through the twelve step program, which today works very well, but that's where they diagnosed me with you got an image management problem, right? Because addiction will manifest itself, will remanifest itself in many ways. Mm-hmm. So if I take out the alcohol, it could turn into binge watching TV. Mm-hmm. It could turn into work. It could turn into exercise. It could turn into sex. It could turn into pornography. Addiction. It's it's like this flashlight. You can't turn it off. Right, so let's try to figure out and fix what my root here is or whatever it is. What would you say, though, I want to back up a smidge because you talk about starting in your 20s, and I think for people who might have friends or family members or loved ones in their family, I think it's so difficult to walk that path with some people um, with grace and and space for them, but how much can you speak to um, relapsing as a part of getting whole and, and becoming a sober individual for people like that? Like, how can you speak to that? Um, well, it kind of goes to your point on grace. And, you know, relapse is something that I define. It's like, you know, it could be much more simple than taking a drink. Mm-hmm. Relapse can happen in in just taking simple actions and thoughts people places and things that might trigger and start to to kind of weave back in right so a lot of times i will count something as a slip just because of a thought that i might be having mm-hmm. now the grace comes in and so here's some what i started to to learn so the first thing i had to come to terms with was how can I have a personal relationship? People talk about this personal relationship with God of your understanding. And I was like, well, I thought I did. I mean, I go to church and pray. I was like, but what's a personal relationship? And when I started to realize, it's like when we go back to that 13-year-old, it's like, well, how can I ever receive the love of my father if I can't love myself? Mm -hmm. All of myself, the 13-year-old version of myself. So until I can help that 13-year-old cross that river, take him by the hand, and let him know every day that he is loved, and as an adult today, 
that I am taking care of not just me, but him and the three-year-old version and every part of me, only then can I open my heart to actually feel God's love. I mean, he's always loved me, but it's just like a father. I mean, you know, you know, he's probably frustrated because I'm unwilling to accept mm-hmm. his grace. He is offering me mm-hmm. grace. I can't receive it because I'm so busy not even giving myself grace. Right. Not giving yourself that value. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, but you love me. Uh, if you saw these warts, you wouldn't love me. Uh, you love if me. You, you say truth. that you love me. Yeah, but if you saw my real truth, uh, it's too <laughs> ugly. It's too ugly. It's too ugly. Right. We're right. too hard on ourselves to We're let that love in. Right. And so that language of allowing yourself to be loved and seeing your value no matter what. No matter what. No matter what. And then, then, then I can start addressing the image management things, the lying, the half-truths, the, the uh, lying by exclusion, right? And really getting into that and starting to feel how good that can feel. That, you know, the I can sit here today and say, as a result of trying to be rigorously honest, it's I can wake up in the morning and feel like a good person in spite of what, whatever is happening. But it, it becomes kind of a loop where it's like, yeah, but what happens is I'm doing God's work and it feels better and better. And so I think those were the things that started. So when I started to focus on the image management and the root cause back when you said going back to the childhood, I began to, to see where it started. So now let's talk about that. Well, why did you start it in the first place? Well, what I learned when, you know, I'm kind of a... I, I need data. I, I need analytics to understand what's the science behind addiction. And what they shared with me is that, you know, the amygdala part of the brain is what's responsible for fight or flight. Mm-hmm. Okay? That's where you learn the fear of tigers and bears. If you see a tiger or a bear, you need to run. That's the amygdala kicking in. You didn't think, you didn't you you just you reacted, right? If if you know, somebody throws a football, your magdala is the one that's going to reach up and catch it so it doesn't hit you in the nose, right? You didn't think, you just reacted. And when you're walking through an airport and you see a beer on the table, it was my magdala that said, grab the beer. And then I'd be sitting there thinking, why did I do this? I didn't even want to drink. Why does this keep happening? Why can't I get sober? And I started to realize it's the magdala portion of the brain, that fight or flight, that I had inadvertently trained through, you know, if you go back to watching TV, binge watching TV, to the alcohol, to addictions, it's like, okay. And, and so what happens is, let's talk about that tiger. So you need to know that tiger's charging you. Something has to happen so quick that you run. That means the amygdala holds enough memory in there to say, tiger bad. Learned that lesson long time ago. Run right? So it's a, it's a neural pathway. It's like a river. It's an adrenaline. So you basically get, get a drop of, a, of, of dopamine into your brain that, that tells you, you got to go now because it has enough memory in there to tell you, run. So mine has enough memory in there to say, drink. See a beer? Drink. So I've created this, this neural pathway that that's what was happening. So it's like, okay, now I understand that. Now what do I do? Well, that's where you engage the frontal lobe. Well, the frontal lobe 
is kind of the, the executive branch of our brain. It's the one that holds all the memories. It's the one that holds feelings. Ah, wait a minute. I didn't feel very good as a kid, okay? I was, I was sad, and I didn't know what to do with that sadness. And so I didn't want to feel. Even though we're out playing with friends and everything, I just, I just, I just wanted to isolate and stop the feelings. So the root cause of my addiction, so when you were asking about slips and relapses, that's where some of those relapses are, is, is I have to pause and when feelings come, embrace them, mm-hmm. live with them. Because mm-hmm. you know what? It might be really sad. It might be fear. There might be remorse. There might be regret. Okay? So this is happening right now. That's the frontal lobe. Engage. When you can engage the, re-engage the frontal lobe, the frontal lobe has the power to overcome the amygdala's you know, need. But that's not easy because, okay, so you're telling me I have to start feeling. And if I can feel, I can engage the executive branch, the frontal lobe, and that is the journey and the walk towards sober living. Except one problem. I don't like how I feel. I mean, there's so many bad memories. There's Mm -hmm. so many past mm. feelings and regrets and gosh I was so you know terrible in this and that and, and not just that when I look forward I'm so afraid of like you know gosh what's going to happen in three months and three years and with my mom and my house my job and ugh now what mm-hmm. this is this is overwhelming mm-hmm. okay there was one answer that was put in front of me a vital spiritual experience now that we've got the frontal lobe engaged if you want to manage that I need to find a personal relationship with God, a God who is willing to give grace and a God who can forgive all the past, all the future. And so a lot of times whenever I start to have these feelings, I would say, where are you, God? Where, or, where are you? And I kind of started to have an epiphany a little while ago where it's like, wait a minute, God's here. He's in this second. He's not in five seconds from now, five minutes from now. There's no God there. And there's no God five minutes past. He's here, right here. So therefore, if I want to maintain a connection with God so that he can help me through these feelings, I have to focus on staying present, present. And so when you were talking about where does the slip happen, the slip happens when I begin to ruminate on the past, project on the future, which elicits a fear reaction, which is like that tiger. Right. Right? So I have to be like here, because here is where help is. Mm-hmm. And how are your relationships with your family members? Have you, are those healed through this, or was that? Yeah, there wasn't, I mean... You know, through this all, I was blessed in that overall, I think they would all say, you know, I was a pretty good dad, pretty good husband. There wasn't a lot of, you know, necessarily repair. But here's what it was, is that image management, well, along come my son and daughter, and like both kids, you know, mom and dad are heroes. I mean, good Lord, dad is like one step away from from Spider-Man incarnate, right? I mean, they think... I am the knight. 
And as kids get older, they begin to see kind of, wait a minute, you know, that's kind of not quite a superhero. And I can remember that bothered me. Mm. That bothered me a lot. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, because that's image management on steroids, you know, the kids. Yeah, so yeah. as they grow up and they get to adolescence, and they're just like, you know what? That can even be kind of flawed. In fact, right. you can be kind of a jerk sometimes right. too, right? And so that is like, well, that's only creating more fear and, and uncertainty in me. Because you were kind of evaluating yourself through other people through as, again. I, right. Especially the kids. Right. They were the ultimate tool, right? You got these little kids. They're so easy to win over. Yeah. Um, and so when I was able to share with them and come absolutely clean on everything you, we're talking about here, my addictions, what I'm going through, the the probation that I find myself on today for two years, the 240 hours of service work that I have to do, the drug testing that I have to do, um, they're actually blown away by it. And it's like, wow, we actually know who you are now. <laughs> and the love between us is so much greater because they're like, this is cool because yeah, you're sharing. It's authentic. It's authentic. Right. Yes. Yeah, it's real. It's real. Yeah. Yeah. Are your parents sober? Are they? No, my, my dad yeah. my dad passed away. Um, he and no, he was still pretty dysfunctional. Uh, mom's still alive. Um, you know. Her journey, her own journey. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's been hard. It's been, I mean, she's fine. She, she's doing well. She is. She's living here in Naperville. And I personally, I would say, I never liked my mom. And so let's let's go through this. Is, is I, ugh, every time she would touch me, it, it was like this, this shock would go through my system of, of just, ugh, couldn't take it. I really, really had a hard time with it. And it's a term, again, that I've learned of enmeshment. Because she was so broken that that she was trying to to she wanted me to love her in in a very selfish addict kind of way. I'm broken, so Kevin, cut, you know, when I'm little, come give me a hug. I don't want to give you a hug right now. Come give me a hug. Cut. I don't want. Come give me a hug. And it's like, do you need the hug or do I need the hug? Yeah. Interesting. And interesting that you picked that up as a child. Mm -hmm. I think people uh, underestimate how intuitive a child can be that you're not hugging me to love me. You want me to love me. You are requesting me. Right. You want me to fill the void that you're not getting from from your husband. Yeah, that's fascinating. And and that's a term called enmeshment. I've never Um, heard of that before. the, The flip side of that is is where you know you you put you you put him up I'm using males in this but it could apply to females I imagine up on a pedestal he can do no wrong he's the little king and you know you're saying she did that to you like as the child right and so that pressure or that expectation uh, on you is it's just right and so yeah. it created uh something that was very very hard on me and it's interesting is now that I'm kind of walking this journey is it's become so much easier in Christ to love her, mm. okay? Because I'm doing it on my terms. I'm not expecting her to heal herself, right? okay? That, that's, that's her job between yep. her and God. Yep. But what God has done in my life 
has allowed me to love her. Give that without expectation. Yeah. yeah. I don't have that that feeling of I have to do this. Now it's like I call her. I'm like, hey, mom, what, what do you need? Can I bring something over? Coming over. I'm going to bring a cup of coffee. You doing good? It's like, wow, this feels good to me. And it all is a result of this personal relationship that has been growing in God. So what led you to our saviors? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that's a great question. Um, so I have to do 240 hours of community service. Mm-hmm. Now at the time I was... Um, it, I was going into our jails and running uh, meetings with addicts. I was going well, that to... That had to be fascinating. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, it's awesome. Yeah, we can... And, and so I was going to other, like, uh, outpatient facilities, running meetings, you know, for them, just working with addicts, trying to share my story with them, vice versa. And interesting enough, the court system said, yeah, none of that counts. I'm like... Your, your jail, right right next door, the adjoining building here, that, that doesn't count. Nope. It's like, okay, what am I going to do? Uh, go to Loaves and Fishes. I'm like, look, that doesn't fill me. Mm-hmm. Stacking cans doesn't fill me. Mm-hmm. And I said, what else can I do? And they said, well, we have about over 200 other places you can go. I'm like, great. Can I see the list? No. Okay. It's like the hardest thing um, it was in the hardest world thing to accomplish this goal. Uh, yeah, so uh, I was just that you're required like, to do. Can I do Habitat for Humanity? No. And you know, here at Our Saviors, uh, I have been exposed to Our Saviors. It's close, and so it's like, how about Our Saviors? And they're like, oh yeah, they're on the list. <laughs> so I'm like, great. All right. So I introduced myself to Jean, Jean Jepson, and through Jean, she's like, yeah, given the way you want to serve. We can find some things. So it's been so rewarding, you know, meeting, you know, Pastor Brian. We've had some good conversations, great conversations. Um, but so yeah. you literally your doorway in was through serving. Yeah, that's really powerful. And like, this is my thing. The, the guy is perfect at it. Like, it, so it, it's it, it stinks everything beforehand to get you here. But you're being fed by these relationships that you have with people here at our church. I mean, the guy, Kevin, is awesome at it. Like, y- you can see the joy on his face uh, when he's connecting with others. It's It's been great. Well, uh, thank you. Yeah. What I've also learned, what I've been fed through this is, is it got me thinking of... Um, the five love languages. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is is and at first when you think of the five love languages, you're thinking your relationship with your spouse. A romantic. Right. Right. But what about utilizing the five love languages in my relationship with Christ? Yeah. Right. Okay. And then manifesting in the community. Yeah. So right. so the five love languages is is affirmations, service, quality time. Mm-hmm. Uh, touch. Touching and gifts. Yes. Okay. And when I started to think about the aha moment I've had here at Our Saviors, which again, I think I have been rewarded, it just it's raining rewards down on me, is that I actually started to use what are my spiritual gifts. And my, my love language with my wife is I am, I am the service guy. 
right? I'm somebody mm-hmm. that you cross wants off that honeydew do, list. Yes. Oh my I god. I need you to come visit my cat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I am. <laughs> I, am I am just like the energy. If that. It's so. But see, that's a, so. And I then mean, it fills you up. It fills because me because you up. say I did this for you. I yes. Yeah. Uh, and. But then it's like, well, what's my wife's? Since we're talking love language yeah, and spouses. Yeah, how does she receive? How does she receive that? That's, yes. So I'm the type that can stand in the kitchen, clean the kitchen, cook the dinner yeah. while maintaining a conversation with her. She is usually sitting at the kitchen table and it's driving her crazy because service is not her love language. How she receives love. Right. Yeah. She wants... She is... She's a quality, quality time, time. Yeah. person. So sit down at the that. table. Look eyeball to eyeball. Take a uh-huh. minute Take. and let's just hang together for here. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. That drives me crazy because I'm like, I'm like, I'm just sitting there kind of like <laughs> right? looking around the room. Trying to figure, hey, well, sometimes on. the way that we love, right, isn't the way that people receive love. And that's a fascinating thing. Or it the is. way that we give love isn't how we receive love. So that can be confusing for and it people creates to a lot, try to it interpret. it created a lot of resentment, yes. right? She feels resentful because she's like, well, you don't love me. And yeah. then I'm I'm feeling resentful. I'm like, are you kidding? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. I didn't actually yep. clean the kitchen. I just cleaned the kitchen. Yeah. And and so recognizing what her love language is and what I need to do to serve her is again, it's made it so much easier to have a relationship now that she feels that Fulfilled I'm, in that. Yeah. But I sort of love translating that because in a romantic relationship or in relationships that are more intimate, that can be trickier. But I mm-hmm. think it's almost exciting that using your love language or your way to give back to a relationship in a community, really all are welcome, right? That's because right. we need all of them. And so your acts of service True. in the church... That's a baller play. Like, that's awesome. Like, everybody wants that here in a community because everybody needs acts of service. And somebody else might be the great hugger. But they're all welcome in that community. So I think that's a cool... I've never thought of it that way. I just had this kind of epiphany, like, recently was that that I get to use my love language. It fills me, right? Right. You know, it fills me to do service work. And I have a, a church family that's like... We love this. Nobody's saying, hey, sit down, give me eye contact. They're, yes. they're like, um, you know, we're loving the service. Yes. And I started to realize, like, wow, after going to church for so long and, you know, I, I, I religiously go to, to services, services and, I, and, and so I realized, like, it's really not quite my love language, so I yeah. try to get something out of it, but, right. you know, it's kind of like that eye contact quality yeah. time. It's yeah. not... So it's the service work that just has put my relationship with God and my church family on a a whole different level. That's awesome. I think that's a thing actually that our church does amazing is it gives the gift of giving people the ability to serve and give gifts. Like even for your kids, I don't know what age they are, but um, I think our kids have always had that opportunity and that gives you such a great healthy place to get self-esteem and image and identity uh, through serving others. Yeah. Well, I was at the concert uh, this past weekend, right? That the, the two, well, both the three and the five. And in a town that's probably got 155,000 people, what was so cool is sitting here on Sunday evening, you would have thought you were in some small town, you know, hallmark, you know, movie or something because it made Naperville small because 
you know, you see half a dozen people that you know who introduce you to two or three more people. And by the end of the evening, I mean, you're just having great discussions with people. You're, you're kind of just letting the music kind of pour in and everybody has volunteered to use their spiritual gift on stage. It's not like, hey, this person is a recording artist and, you know, it's like, no, anybody can, can do anything. And it's just, you know, when I walked out of there, Brian, on, on Sunday, it was just this feeling of like, wow, this feels like Neighborville is a town of about 12,000 people and everybody knows everybody and everybody cares about everybody. Yeah, so and more connectedness. Used, yes, very, yeah. very, very, very much. Yeah, that's awesome. So I think that's, and it gets me out of myself. And the other thing is that's also looking at those five love languages. So getting back to that brain, it's like, okay, so you got, you got the amygdala that's your fight or flight. You've got the frontal lobe that you now have to re-engage. So, and now you've got your higher power, my higher power, so now what? And one of the biggest ways to change our lives is through positive affirmations. And these are things that you have to say out loud. And this is, again, there's, there's a science behind this. This is clinical science mm-hmm. that you can't just sit there and, and think about three things that you like about yourself, but rather, it's the, they said that if you want to change that neural pathway from sending the dopamine to the magdala that you're going to react is I have to wake up in the morning and say, um, you know, uh, I am good enough. God loves me. I love myself. I'm no longer defined by my past. I'm a good man today. Now. That's what you say out loud. Out loud. You have to say it. it it's, and I, you know, and it's kind of, if you knew who I was uh, a few years ago, I'll tell you the, the my, I used to tell people, I remember my first year of sobriety when I was called up on stage. I said, hey, I'm glad I'm, um, I'm sober. I know one of the things we got to do is action, help others. I'm just trying to be honest with you. I don't like helping people. Uh-huh. Okay? I don't like helping people. It's, that's, yeah, you're kind of getting in my way. Um, now I seek it out. Uh, me saying out loud positive affirmations about myself, that's so dorky. That's so ner- That's so powerful. Uh-huh. But that but that but I, I would tell the community the importance of saying positive affirmations to yourself really can bring about the change. And this is clinical science. This is not just hey, somebody kind of thought of an idea. It's clinically proven. Was was it on here that we um trying to remember back where I talked about faith five and the five things you could do in your home. We the, talked about doing these for your kids yeah, with um, Allison. The, the first, it kind of goes with the positive affirmations, is that you share highs and lows. Because when you share a positive thing that's happened in your day, when you share a negative thing that happens, it releases those endorphins. It, it, like that, that little shot I think you're right. yeah. that, of dopamine. And, and so you, what you're doing is you're training your kids from a young age to be able to talk about those things. So exactly. What, and you can do this at any age. You're giving yourself free drugs when you talk, um, when you share those truths that you are loved, Kevin, they, or anybody, you are loved, you're a good person today. All those things, when you share that low with a friend or with even with God in prayer, it re- that's, that's why those um, conversations, that relationship with God matters, because you're then releasing it rather than keeping it inside and isolating yourself. So it's all, the brain is connected that way. And, and in the book um, called Holding Your Family Together by... Uh, oh, 
But if you Google Faith Five holding your family together, he talks about that brain chemistry, why you do it, and why faith why it's important for faith communities to be teaching that. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. That's super powerful. Well, um, and do your does your family go to church here, or is it? Yeah, the, no. Um, no, because my uh, it's mostly me right now. My wife uh, has has a good relationship. She's supportive, you know. Here, and I actually yep. go to church. You know, I go. <laughs> I usually attend two services because, as part of, you know, what I've decided to do as a husband is I want to support her because see, I have a program that I can go to every hour, every day of the week, so I can get fed. She has a program that's feeding her, and I don't want to disrupt that. Absolutely. So I I join her. And make sure that she feels supported. Um, so she worships somewhere else. Yes. But that is her home and that's her family. That's yeah, we have several yeah. people who oh, yeah, um, worship at, at different places. Yeah, yeah, I think whatever works and for your son, family. And my son, Brian and I talked about it. My son right now, he, you know, um, he graduated college and had the opportunity, a couple of good job opportunities. And he came home and said, hey, uh, I joined the Peace Corps. And I'm going to Togo, <gasps> Africa. <laughs> well, and I, my comment was... I guess I thought I raised you to be the same self-absorbed SOB that I am. What did I do wrong? What did you do right? Um, That's fabulous. And he has an interesting perspective because he carries a little bit of a chip on his shoulder. Because he's he's 25 because that's, I guess, what they all do, right? And he's a little, he's like, well, you know, he's like, I was there for almost three years. I see, you know... He's like, I didn't, and he, he's very clear. He's like, I did not go there for God, okay? He's like, I just felt I need to serve. And he's in the questioning phase right now. Sure. And, you know, rather than arguing, it's like, at least you feel something. That's all I ask for you right now is that you feel something. Right. Because, because you're, Brian and I had a lunch over this. It's like, question away. Yeah. The answers will come in their own time. What would really disappoint me is if you just, frankly, just didn't care. Uh, when you when you leave, I hope you'll listen to the Lisa Zollner um, podcast because she is a 20-something, and she had all the questions and all of the doubts, um, and then she started to come on Sunday nights. She's a mentor with me with the high to schoolers. Serve. Um, to serve. But not not because she figured it all out and then came. She came questioning everything. Yeah. Which I think is awesome because I think sometimes yeah. people think the church is where you go. Oh, because now I do believe. Ah, yeah, like that's yeah. I hope that he feels welcome to come when he doesn't think anything. Or, it's you not know, the it's destination; it's the journey. Like it's, it's yes. the journey. We're all on it. We're on. <laughs> yeah, and everybody that's in the building is having a lot of those questions too. So it's not yeah. like people here have it all figured out. I want to kind of tra- you know transition back to something else when we're talking about positive affirmations and that is so when you look at walking you know a program of sobriety and you're going through the steps you have the ever frightening and loathsome step four and five which are taking a personal inventory Mm. and step five being willing to share it right all all the the dirty garbage and sin, everything. So the inventory is you writing down the things that you have done that you feel shame People, for. resentments that you have, fears okay. that you have, okay. um, things that you've done, everything, right? And so many people have asked, like, well, why is that necessary? It's like, because that's the first step in grace. 
Because step five, it's a grace step. You're sharing it with somebody else and your higher power, and then you're going to get on your knees and you're going to pray about it. And it's gone. It's forgotten. It's over. And what's it feel like? And, and it's interesting. So many people struggle with that because it goes back to what I said earlier. It's like, are they willing to receive grace? Now. Now. Not past. Now. now. Yeah. Right. And I think that's where, that's where some of the wheels of people <clears throat> you know, who are trying to overcome addictions, that's where the wheels start to come off is that they don't want to do that, but it's like, do what? Okay, I'll, I'll share it, but it's like, yeah, you shared it, but are you receiving the grace? Do you feel that? Because until we've got to stop right there, and until I would say, you know, me who've tried to get sober for 20 years, what's different now is the willingness to receive grace. Who am I to be so arrogant to hang on to that stuff? Let it go, or as they say, drop the rock. So now it takes me to oftentimes, and this is where a lot of times people talk about, well, let's talk about your character strengths and your character defects. It's like, hmm, for me, this Kevin's interpretation is like, no, I have a set of characteristics, and how I choose to use my characteristics is what turns into a strength or weakness. It's not a defect. I am not a defect. And so here's kind of the thing that that Brian and I talked about, and this is huge, is that the the addiction has not gone away, okay? I've not had some sort of white light moment where I never think about a slip, Mm -hmm. okay? It doesn't happen. And forever... I just thought like, well, this, this kind of sucks, you know, and I keep praying about it though. I keep praying that, <clears throat> come on, come on. We got, we got a relationship going. It just, just take it. It's yours. And, you know, all of a sudden I, I now have embraced it. And it's like, no, God said, this is part of who I made you to be. And You're just going to have to keep that with you because if tomorrow morning, tonight I pray and tomorrow morning it's gone, what reason do I have to pray, right? I mean, if if this this, this addiction leaves me, that that feeling that happens, that that amygdala kicks in and starts feeling fear and then wants to, to do, to act out, if that's gone, what do I need to pray for? Because I think we've already identified the fact that, you know, I'm an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. My ego will continue to run because now I don't have that feeling anymore. I'm not in the foxhole anymore. I'm free. I'll let you know when I need you, God. I'll check in when I need you. Appreciate it. Thanks. Maggard out. No. See, now I realize every time I have that feeling, it's an opportunity to pray. Mm -hmm. It's an opportunity to ask for grace. It's an opportunity to thank God that he gave me this feeling. Because today, if you ask me, how many times did I pray today? Well, it's kind of a trick question, because if I know the answer, then it wasn't enough. And I have to tell you, it's like, it's almost nonstop. Because the feeling comes and it goes, and it comes and it goes. And as soon as I feel it coming on, I can just pause. I can take a couple breaths. 
and I can I can say your will, not mine. And so now I took something that many would say, well, isn't that a character defect? That's like, I don't know. Maybe it's a character strength. I don't know. Kevin, it's, it's how I... Yeah, that's really beautiful. And I right. think it can translate to people... Um, who struggle with addiction, but I honestly think it can translate to all of us because we all feel less than at different times. We all feel like, oh, I can be loved by others or I can be loved by God if I didn't have this or if I, you know what I mean? If I didn't struggle with this or, oh, why don't I speak out again and not watch my mouth or have self-control? That's what he gave each one of us. Whatever it is that makes you feel less than. Right. Maybe it makes you say, let me get down on my knees because I need to awesome. have you help me. That's awesome. One of, one of the things that I love most about Kevin is it's just so truthful and, and real. And um, I don't know if you'd be willing to share. When when we had lunch last, it, it was a, a milestone day. And so my reaction is, that's so awesome. That's great. You know, like, the, you know, like, don't you feel great? And you shared truthfulness with me that day, which opened my eyes to like how... Uh, do you mind sharing about like how like do you remember what you said to me? No, that go, you, oh, you, you, yeah, you're, you're just like me. I don't feel good today. Like you just like I right. I don't feel great. So like for us, we're like it's a big milestone. Congratulations! You're like yeah, yeah I don't. And I think like with what yeah. you were referring to there is like if I lost that feeling. Um, I I lose that connection to to pray with God. So it's so weird to say like. It, it was a gift to me again to see your truth, even on a milestone day. That you're it, this isn't gone from you. It's a it is an addiction. It's going to be a a way uh, defining kind of uh, this is a part of your life. Mm-hmm. And so milestone days aren't that great. You can you you'll but you turn to God every single day, every moment. Yeah. You know. So I, I don't know if you have any more to say, no, but that was huge for me to, yeah, to hear. So so what you're talking about? So I, you know. Look, it wasn't a great day. I was depressed. I was sad. I was just sad. And to, to Brian's point, it's, it's, those are opportunities to draw closer to God. I mean, this, this journey is not supposed to be easy. It, it's not. It's, it's an opportunity to reach out and ask for help. Well, and I don't think it's supposed to be cheap. You know, like easy is cheap to me. Right. It's an authentic relationship that you are growing it be, by being in relationship now. Right. Before, yeah, it, it was it was a fake relationship. It, it, you know, it, mine was that way in many ways. And so, when you take it serious, when you're truthful, then it's then you know that God is there with you. Then you know that people are there with you when when you have that true relationship. Yes, people and you know, and the connection to 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 the people because. Because it's in that moment that, you know, the, the old me would reach into the old toolbox. I could step into the closest bar or whatever. And mm-hmm. after that first beer, that is a quick fix. Because I'll tell you what, it's gone. It's gone. That sadness is gone. But, you know, yeah. on the other side of that is a, is a whole lot of misery, pain, and angst yeah. and regret. Um, but in that moment, I can, just, I can just try to find God's grace. And... and you know, one of the things I've learned how to do, it's like, okay, so God is here. He's here to help me. What can I do? What can I do right now? I can talk to people in my church family. I can talk to the people in my recovery network. I can call somebody else and say, hey, I'm not feeling very good today. You know, reach out. 
talk to people. I, yesterday, um, I went over, you know, because I've just, it's interesting, you know, I told you before, I supposedly didn't like service work, but then I realized my love language is service. Mm. Yesterday, because this is kind of a slow period at work, I went and spent four hours over at Lowe's and Fishes on behalf of our saviors, right? Yeah. And I helped, you know, load groceries. And it was amazing. It's the easiest way. It's like, there's no way you can go do that and walk away feeling sorry for yourself, you know? Yeah, I love it. I feel like the thing that I'm hearing loud and clear from you in this journey of your life is coming to value your intrinsic value um, mm-hmm. and then yeah. through valuing that value of relationship with God, knowing that he values you. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's what I hear. I can't read that quick. What were you <laughs> I, I try. I try to give Marty notes sometimes. I think my thing is like I... I Trying to trying to find ways to like summarize it too is you talk about love languages and how you've learned to be able to share this love through service um, when you're having a tough day because I I care so deeply about you that I, I would stand by this man through anything after hearing his story and and just especially how authentic and truthful you are because we live in a fake world. So when you're having a tough day and you're struggling, how could we as a faith community, you've talked about giving your love language, how could we share it with you? Yeah, how do you receive love? Right. And I'm saying from the community point of view, because do you understand why I'm saying that? Because um, that's hard. It's hard to receive love and we want to give it in many ways, I think. Yeah, I, I think... It, what what you're building here is a church family. I mean, each person in their own way in their, is, is carrying God in their heart. And so it, it's something that doesn't have to be, um, you know, it's, it's, I think it's just the people that are caring, right? If I'm, if I'm cleaning up coffee, right, you know, people coming up and saying, hey, you know, Gosh darn it! You're the best coffee cleaner we've ever seen. Right? <laughs> being seen, <laughs> but, being, right? but being seen, being seen, and being heard. Right? Yeah. Like I feel like that's what. Yeah, By the I way, hear that. You would have seen him on Sunday at the Christmas concert because he had the best red right. jacket oh, I've right. ever seen. Fabulous! Did you enjoy per, uh, percussionist? Because um, I had my one of my small group guys, Patrick, was performing in oh, that, yeah. and then he ran yeah. over and we did toys for tots with the high schoolers. But yeah. 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 Awesome. Yeah. No, it's it's no, it's really a fabulous community that's building. Yeah. I think um, you know, the summary that, that you talk about is if we've all remember growing up and in, in taking in our literature class, they talked about um remember reading Greek literature, which many literature is built off of, mm-hmm. and they, there's a formula for the journey of a hero. So if anybody's a fan of Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or any of those, they basically use, there's a formula, right, that the hero goes through. I mean, what does it take to become a hero? And you talk about somebody who has talents, right? And they embark on a quest and they fail. And it's through the failure that they have to recognize weakness. And to overcome the weakness, they have to engage a community of people that are there that are going to help them. And together, because of their weakness, they realize that they can't do it alone and that they need help. And only then can the hero, you know, overcome, you know, that quest and find the success, which makes him the hero. So, you know, it's the hero learning how to, to recognize their flaws 
and how to leverage the community to help them overcome that, yes. right? And so, you know, that that is, uh, you know, again, Star Wars is the same way if you look at all that. But that that is something I think we all go on, right? Yeah. Is is each one of us has a hero inside of us. There's a hero in everybody. And it's like, don't be afraid of the quest. Don't fear the quest. You know, don't fear the failure because those are opportunities. Don't fear your weaknesses, right? right? Um, because and you're it, not alone. You're not alone because that's where you can find the grace and that's where you can find the community. But, but the weakness is an opportunity to get closer to his power. Well, I think that is awesome. I so appreciate you um, sharing your story with us. And I think that not to mess with your image management, but I think that is the definition. You are being a hero, you know, living in truth and being authentic and genuine and serving and, and living that for your kids. And for all of us to hear that story, I think is a really gift. So I really, really thank you for coming on You're and amazing. sharing your thank story. You. Yes. Um, so get to know everybody at our church because they all have a great story. Yes, I'm um, really that good. Go ahead and Google me. <laughs> or that, you that so line much. from Robert Burgundy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Kevin. Thanks for being on. Yeah. Um, and yeah, everybody, we'll see you soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye.